Park Air coming up this weekend. Make sure you get a chance to sign up for that if you want. Movie coming up here, you can sign up for that. New Bible study. There's lots of sign-up sheets back there to the right. Prayerfully consider getting involved with those things that you feel led to get involved with. Glad you can make it out this morning, middle of February. Let's pray. Let's get started. Heavenly Father, you teach, we listen, let your spirit guide and direct. Just good to be here this morning to worship you, just to have this time of fellowship. But for right here, right now, we want to focus on you. We want to learn of you, to grow in you, and then go out and be lights and witnesses for you in all that we say and all that we do. Thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. We're going to be starting in verse 27 here this morning. We've been doing the final day of Jesus' life for quite some time. And, you know, we've seen the PowerPoint that we've had up there of just starting being arrested in the garden versus the trials of Pilate. We are through all the trials now. He's been to Annas. He's been to Caiaphas. He's been to Pilate. He's been to Herod, etc. We're now actually at the time where he's going to be going to the cross. Now, when you start teaching about the cross, it's easy to have two different pendulum swings. One pendulum swing is what I call the shock value. And the other pendulum swing is you have a tendency to overlook of the cross. We want to focus just on the facts of it this morning in two ways. The physical facts of what Jesus went through, but also spiritually. Spiritually, what does this mean? What does this represent? Why was this important for this to happen? And we're going to be picking it up here in verse 27. All the trials are done. Jesus has now been told he's going to be crucified, and that's where we leave it off in verse 26. He delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Praetorium is a fancy word. Courthouse, governing hall, the whole garrison. Pilate would have had a few thousand troops under his command. We don't know exactly how many troops he put around here. We know from other gospel accounts when Jesus was arrested in the garden, it was about 600 soldiers. But there's this group of soldiers now that are kind of surrounded him as they're getting ready to send him to the cross. Verse 28, they stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him and they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Please remember as we go through this passage, remember the verse in Philippians, Every knee will bow. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's going to come a time where the truth of who Jesus is, the world will know. At this time right here, it's mocking. This word mock is used three times in the lesson here this morning. This this relentless mocking of him. The mocking of putting on a scarlet robe, the color of authority, the color of power, the color of a king. The mocking of this fake scepter of a reed that they turn around and then beat him with. This mocking of hail, king of the Jews, bowing before him, verse 29. And then they're striking him and spitting on him, etc. And the crown of thorns, his kingly crown. What were the thorns? I don't know for sure. We like to go back to the crick behind our house, and there's a couple different thorns we run into. I don't know exactly what they're called. We call them locust trees. They have the huge, huge thorns. We're talking three, four, sometimes it looks like five. I mean, huge thorns there on those trees. Oh, those are awful. So normally what we do is I go back through first and I try to knock down, make a path so that way the boys can follow. But even if they weren't the big, huge thorns, there's this plant, and I don't know what it is, grows straight up and has these tiny little thorns on them. And it always gets one of the boys, no matter what you do. I don't care if the thorns are big. I don't care if the thorns are small. Taking that and putting it on his head and putting it straight down, twisting it in, that's pain. It's pain. So he's been the crown of thorns to mock him, the scarlet robe to mock him, the bowing before him to mock him, beating him with his scepter reed to mock him, spitting on him, striking him, everything. And then they take him away in verse 31 to be crucified. 
Now, we need to talk about what it means to be crucified here at this time. See, at this point, what would happen is this. Jesus has been scourged. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that the reason that Pilate scourged him was actually to try to maybe create a little bit of sympathy. Pilate scourged him, then presented him to the Jews and basically said, here here he is. Hasn't he gone through enough? And the Jews said, no, he has to die. So what was scourging? Scourging was they would take the whip, and at the end of the whip, they would put little pieces of bone or metal or glass. So therefore, when they would hit your back, those little pieces of bone, metal, or glass would actually dig into your skin and pull the skin out as they would do this. Normally, it was done 39 times, and by the end of 39 times, you would have muscle laid bare. You would have maybe bones even possibly showing. The back would be just one big open mess. Sometimes men did not even survive that part of it by the blood loss and the shock. So Jesus' back has been laid open. The crown of thorns on his head, he's been beat, he's been spit on, he's been beat numerous times. We've talked about this all morning. He hasn't had any sleep. This has happened all night. And now, as he's going to his own death to be crucified, he has to carry the cross beam. That's what the Romans did. They would create a path, and they would walk through, and they would usually put an officer on a horse in front to get everybody's attention, and this crowd would line up to mock, to etc. as this person was walking past. And Jesus is carrying this cross beam. This cross beam would weigh anywhere from 75 to 125 pounds. And he'd have to carry this after being beat, laid open, losing blood. And then he's going to go be crucified. Now, as he is carrying this, verse 32, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Now, as they're carrying this cross, Jesus can't do it. He stumbles. He falters. He physically can't do it. So they see Simon, and they compel him. Some of your translations say they force him. Now, I've seen lots of movies where they represent Jesus going to the cross, and I've seen some movies where the music changes. It becomes dramatic. Simon, tears well up in his eyes, and Simon runs out there to help Jesus. That's not the case. He was compelled. He was forced. Why would he not want to do this? But we can speculate that he was probably in town for the Passover. He was probably in town to do this here as as maybe a Jew that lived out. So by him going and getting anywhere near Jesus, guess what? He now immediately becomes unclean. He wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover in any way whatsoever. He now has the blood and sweat of this man on him. He's unclean. This was also unexpected. Why was he standing there? I don't know why he was standing. He could have been just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He could have been walking someplace and he got caught up in the crowd. I don't know. Maybe he was a guy that was sitting there mocking him. We don't know. This was unexpected. And lastly, unwilling. When you're forced to do something, when you're compelled to do something, you're unwilling. So here you have Simon who now is unclean. This is unexpected and it's unwilling. And they force him to do it. Now, just to be honest, have you ever been a Simon The Lord has laid something on your heart, and you don't want to do it. It's around people or things that make you feel unclean. I don't want to do this. And you know what? It's unexpected. This does not fit into my schedule of what I expected to do today. And lastly, Lord, I just don't want to. I am unwilling. And you can relate to what Simon is going through. There was something that happened here recently at church, and something was popping up, and I just didn't want to do it. Just one of those things where it's like, Lord, I just don't want to do this. And, you know, you pray about it, and you're up all night, and every time you wake up, you kind of give it over to the Lord in prayer. And, Lord, I just, my heart's not into this. I just don't want to do this. And as I was getting ready to go someplace, I was kind of going through the message here, and the Lord said, you're teaching on Simon, right? Simon, who was unwilling, (laughs) unexpected, didn't want to do it. And what I always tell you, you got to practice what you preach, right? 
Anything you learn here, you probably either went through it this week or you're going to go through it here this upcoming week. And maybe some of you this morning have something that you already know what I'm talking about. The Lord's laid it on your heart and you just don't want to do it. Some of you, something's going to come up and this message is going to come back. But it came to my mind and I thought, you're right, Lord. I'm being, I'm being like Simon. I don't want to do this. I kid you not, less than five minutes later, I get a text and guess what? Don't have to go do it. Now, I'm not saying that works out every time. That only happens for the people that God loves. But the point is... <laughs> The point is that God, I had to have my heart get to the point where I was willing. I was willing. We all have things that we don't want to do. It makes me unclean. It's unexpected. It's unwilling. So why would God do this with Simon? Why would he do it? And why would it be brought out? And it's just this quick one little verse. And in the book of Mark, though, it mentions his kids, Rufus and Alexander. Why would God give these details? And I tell you, these are the verses I love. Because you sit here and you study the song and you're thinking, Lord, you made a point for this. What's the point? First off, Cyrene. That's 800 miles away, North Africa. This guy's going to go back to North Africa and do what? Start telling people about Jesus. If you ever wondered how the gospel got spread, here's a perfect example. Here's this man that may be in town for the Passover, and what's going to happen? He's going to go back. How was the Passover? Well, you're not going to believe this. But I started carrying this cross for this guy that was going to be crucified. And then I know who Jesus is. Next thing you know, he's going back to North Africa. And what is he doing? He's telling people about Christ. Why would in the Gospel of Mark, why would it mention Rufus and Alexander? Because later on in the New Testament, Paul's writing his epistles. Guess who Paul mentions? Rufus and Alexander. Now, we don't want to tie too many loose ends together. But it sure looks like this man comes to know who Christ is. And this man impacts his family. And next thing you know, by him carrying the cross of Christ... He's saved, his kids are saved, his family's saved, and they're now impacting other people for Christ. Sometimes those unwilling, unexpected, unclean things that we try to stay away from, the Lord says, no, if you allow this to happen, if you're willing, the Lord will use this in so many different ways. Is it difficult? You bet it's difficult. Think about this. When I was preparing for the lesson, I came across this paragraph. When Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. This, meaning right here what we're reading in Matthew, this is exactly the scene he had in mind. Everyone knew what the cross was, an unrelenting instrument of death and only death. The cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions and spiritual feelings. The cross was a way to execute people. But in these 20 centuries after the death of Jesus, we have sanitized and ritualized the cross. How would we receive it if Jesus said, walk down death row daily and follow me? Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There was no return ticketing. It was never a round trip. So when we read about this, taking up our cross, we're very blessed. We live in an area right now where we don't need to worry about this. But what's it mean for you to take up your cross? It means you to die to yourself. It means to die to whatever is holding you back. See, so often we talk about this thing I call comfortable Christianity. I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. I read my Bible. I go to church. I serve. And we have this very comfortable thing. Now, I'm not saying to purpose to go out and look for difficulties. But I'm saying this. When you choose to stop and say, Lord, it is all yours. I am done. I am done trying to lead my life. I am done trying to say it's about me. It's all about you, Christ. And I will look at everything through the cross. I will look at everything through Jesus. That means to take up your cross. And there's going to be times where you're unwilling. It's unexpected. You're going to feel unclean. Maybe it's forgiving somebody. Maybe it's loving someone who's unlovable. Maybe it's going and witnessing to somebody or serving in an area. It's like, Lord, I don't want to. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. Don't you remember? Take this cup from me. Three times I prayed it. 
He gets it. He understands it. And he gave us the example to go do it. Where did they go? Verse 33, when they had come to a place called Golgotha. That is to say, the place of a skull. Why was it called the place of a skull? We don't know for sure. This is where the executions happened. Maybe that's why. There's lots of skulls there. Some people believe that the hill may have even looked a little bit like a round mound with a skull there. But this is where he is going to be crucified. Now we have to stop here real quick and just do a brief teaching on what it means to be crucified. As I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson, it's very easy to go to the shock value, but it's also very easy to go to overlooking at it. Let's just state the facts. The Romans were not the ones that first invented this idea of being crucified, but if this is the right word, they're the ones that perfected it. This was the punishment that was given to the worst of the criminals. This was such an awful punishment that if you were a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to be crucified. You only could be crucified if Caesar himself said you should be crucified because the Romans looked at it as such an awful, horrible thing. We've already gone through what Jesus has happened now about him carrying the cross. Well, when he gets to actually Golgotha and he's ready to be crucified, what they would do is they would take nails and they would put the nails through your wrists. Now, so often we see through the hands. The truth is they would probably do it back here. Because if you put the nail through here, it would rip out. So there's a little spot right here that they can get a nail right in, and it would stay. So you're nailed here, you're nailed there, and they would either take the two feet, put them together, we don't know for sure, and they'd drive a nail through both those feet. And now but they put this peg at the bottom of your feet. So this is how you would breathe. So you've got your arms laid out straight, your body is sagging in the middle, and so every time you need to breathe, you need to push off that little peg at the bottom to lift your body up to breathe. So you have a nail through your wrist, nail through your hand. Every time you move, it's pain. Every time you're trying to breathe, it's pain. Please remember Jesus' back is laid open bare. Every time he's lifting his body up to breathe, he's rubbing that open wound back up against the cross. This is also the crown of thorns, the beating, the loss of blood, the no sleep. You're out here in the middle of the day. It's awful. In fact, the word excruciating Have you ever been in excruciating pain? The word excruciating literally means out of the cross. Because that's where that word came from. That was the way they would try to describe the worst pain you could ever imagine was excruciating. Which literally means out of the cross. And that's where Jesus is at right now. Now putting the gospel accounts together, it looks like he was on the cross from about 9 to 3. That's pretty short. Secular accounts talk about people being on the cross for days. Days. In fact, to speed up the process, you know in the gospel accounts, they need to get the people off the cross. They would go and break their legs. Why would they break their legs? Because now they have broken legs. They can't push themselves up to breathe. So they're just dying there. It's awful. It's absolutely horrible. What happens? Well, verse 34, they give him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. That idea of being sour wine mingled with gall, this is supposed to be a painkiller. We know from the gospel account in Mark that they actually had myrrh in it. Myrrh. Please remember that. We're going to come back to that at the end. Verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They take everything from him. Even his clothes. Why? He's not getting off the cross. This is dead man walking. This is nothing. This, this man means nothing to him. He is now just, if you will, a circus sideshow for people to watch. And let's just throw one more insult. Verse 37. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
And as he's being crucified, verse 38, that then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. Why was Jesus in the middle? Well, once again, according to secular history, they usually put the worst offender in the middle. The worst offender. So Jesus now has these robbers on the left, he has these robbers on the right, and they're all going through the same thing. So Jesus is hanging on the cross. Nails through the wrist, nails through the foot, back laid open, struggling to breathe, lifting himself up, crown of thorns, beaten, spit upon, no sleep. And what happens? Verse 39. And those who passed by blasphemed him, saying, wagging their heads, and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also, mocking with the scribes and elders, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come now down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who are crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Here's the truth. Jesus could have come down. He's God. He could have stopped this at any time. But there is a punishment of penalty that's going on. See, now we've got to throw a couple spiritual points in here. If you're a note taker, write it down. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He that knew no sin became sin for us. This is what we're dealing with right now. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus is taking the penalty and the punishment of sin upon himself so you don't have to. He that knew no sin became sin for us. And it's really interesting. In Isaiah 53, it's a fascinating passage. The Bible says it pleased the Father to do this. This is not some sadistic mindset. What it's saying is this is what we need to do. We need to do to take care of this sin problem. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is why Jesus and God the Father had that private time of prayer in the garden to come to this together. Jesus said, I don't want to take this cup if there's any other way. And God's answer, there is no other way. Listen, I've gone to a lot of surgeries before, and one of the toughest surgeries to go to is when it's a little child. And you see the parents worrying about their little child. But something fascinating happens. This child is going into surgery. There's obviously some type of major health issue that needs to be fixed. As they go into surgery, there's worry, fear, anxiety, followed by relief. I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad we're getting this done. It pleases the parents to know that the surgery is happening. So it pleases the parents to know that they're going to cut their child open. It pleases the parents to know this child is going to be recovering now and in pain. It pleases the parents that this child is going to suffer. Well, no. It pleases the parents that that problem is being taken care of surgically. And yes, there's going to be some effects to this, but we're taking care of it. It pleased the Father that sin was now being taken care of. This has been 4,000 years in the making on our time frame. But if you want to go even deeper, it says since the foundation of the world was laid in eternity, eternity, Jesus knew what was going to go on here. It pleased the Father that this is happening. Now it is. Now we need to stop for a second because we have this little verse, verse 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with them reviled him with the same thing. Let's talk about this. Can you go with me to Luke, please? Luke. Luke 23. We know what happens to one of the robbers in Luke 23. Look at Luke 23. Let's start in verse 39. 
Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged and blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I love that. Love that. Deathbed conversions. Saved right at the last minute. Saved right at the last minute. I've got a chance to experience some of those. Got called one time to a nursing home. Got a chance to pray with the lady. And about three hours later, she died. But we had that moment right then, right there, where she could confess Christ, confess her sins, and amen. Jesus did a whole parable. Remember the parable of the guys working in the field. The one guy starts at 8 a.m. The last guy starts at 5 p.m. And they all get paid the same. All get paid the same. Because it's a picture of salvation. We all get paid the same. Please note, there's so much in this. So much in this. Number one, if you've ever seen a movie, a lot of times when they have this little conversation happening on the cross, they're just talking so eloquently and so nicely. Please remember me when you go into your kingdom. As surely I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. We've already established what they're going through. They can't breathe. They can barely move. They're in constant pain. This is a struggle to speak. It's a struggle to have a rational conversation. It's a struggle. So let's make a few points out of this. Number one, some of you have been in excruciating situations. Out of the cross. Pain, spiritually, emotionally, physically. You know what I read here? And please don't take this the wrong way. No matter what you're going through, it never means that you get a free pass on not representing Jesus in what you're going through. Jesus here on the cross is still worrying about men's souls. Please remember that. So often, and I see it in myself, I see it in others, when I start going through something difficult, I become so completely selfish. I got a stuffy nose. But I don't care about hell and heaven anymore. I'm just going to go lay down on my bed. Because my world is ending. My work situation is so awful. My life situation, my relationship situation, my health situation. My world is just so awful that you can't even expect me to think about eternity. You can't expect me to think about the souls of men and women. No. No. Jesus on the cross is still leading people to salvation. Please remember that. It's not about us. It's about him. What else do we see here? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As sure they say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I'm not trying to pick on anything, but please note, there's no religious ceremonies this man needs to go through. He's in. He's in. The beauty of salvation. What do we know about salvation? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Don't you love the simplicity of salvation? This man has no opportunity to do anything. He's just in? Yeah, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For as by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. This man has no opportunity to do anything for the kingdom at this time. See, it's great if you can get saved at age 4, 5, 6, start out early. But it still counts if you get saved at 94, 95, 96. Now, some of you may say, well, then, (laughs) I got 90 years to do what I want. I might as well wait to the end. Well, you're assuming you're going to make it that long, number one. Oldest person ever did a funeral for was 99. So, unless you want to beat that record, you better figure it out before 96. Number two, there's this idea of serving the Lord with the life that God gave you. 
See, part of the beauty of getting saved early is it saves you from a whole lot of problems. It also gives you more opportunity to live for the Lord. Of course, this guy's in. Amen to that. See, I talked about the one deathbed conversion where the lady got saved and just a few hours later she died. I had another one where the guy was in hospice, went in, got a chance to talk to him. Rough guy. Oh, my goodness. It's one of those that if you tell the story, it's like, he got in? Yeah, he got in. Rough guy, in hospice, gets saved. But he lived for about another two days. So I went back the next day to see him. This guy's just completely, utterly heartbroken. And he just, I mean, tears. It's like, what's wrong? We had this great moment. You're saved. He goes, I know. And this is what he told me. I'll never forget. He goes, but I wasted my life when I could have lived for the Lord. Got saved. And the next day he's realizing, I wasted my life when I could have lived it for the Lord. So we stopped right there and said, listen, I don't know how much time you have left. But why don't you do this? Why don't you start praying for your kids, your grandkids? Pray for the generations that you're not going to see. Start praying for them. Came back the next day. He had passed. Talked to his daughter at the funeral. The daughter said, you have no idea. That's all he needed. He felt he had a purpose now. I'm going to spend my final days praying for the generations I'm never going to even see. Why do we want to get saved early? Saves you from problems. But number two, opportunities for the Lord. See, guys, we are so focused on the here and now. We are. We are. And and what does the parable of the sower and the seed say? Those things choke you out. Our kids get sick, and that's all that we think about. Work situation, that's all we think about. We got a bill coming up, that's all we think about. Relationship going downhill, that's all we think about. How about we set our mind on heavenly things? Let's look at Christ, who at the end of his physical life is still telling people how to get saved. Let's remember that. Let's remember that. Please jump back now to Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was a darkness all over the land. But we can piece together this would be from noon to three. Noon to three. Now why does God pick noon to three to do this? Well, obviously it would get a lot of attention, wouldn't it? Top of the day, all of a sudden it becomes dark. Now, you could start saying, well, it's obviously some type of eclipse or something like that. Not possible. We don't want to get into a lot of details. But if you know, the Jews use the calendar, according to the moon, to have their feasts. So if Passover is coming up, full moon couldn't be having that type of eclipse. This is something supernatural. What is happening during this three-hour period? Verse 46, about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthian, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of people believe it's during this three hours at this time that Jesus has taken the full brunt of the sin that we have committed. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. He that knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus knew this was coming. Please remember that. John chapter 10. They do not take my life from me. I lay it down willingly. He's not forced into this. He's not pushed into this. He did this out of love. How do we know that something's going on here? A couple different ways. First off, his phrasing that he used, my God, my God. If you study this on the Greek, this is a very interesting term for God. This is not the normal term that Jesus uses. The term he normally uses shows an intimacy with the Lord, a father-son relationship. That's not this word. See, for the first time since eternity began, Jesus and God the Father, there's a separation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And plus, why that verse? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. It's one of the most prophetic messianic psalms you could ever read. And I encourage you, if you want to go a little deeper, go home and read Psalm 22. And what you'll read in Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the cross. It's fascinating. 
Jesus at this time is taking everything on him. Why do they think he's calling for Elijah? Verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard this, said, this man is calling for Elijah because they heard the Eli, Eli. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Other gospels accounts say at this time, he said, it is finished. Please remember, it is finished. He did not say to be continued. It's over. It's done. If it's done, don't add anything to it, people. It's finished. If you study out that original phrasing that it is finished, is something you could use. Like if I owed a bill, I could go into the place I owed the bill, give them the money, and I could say something similar in Greek to it is finished, meaning we're done now. I have paid my debt. It is finished. It's caught up. It's over. It's done. So if Christ has finished it on the cross, why do we 2,000 years later want to add to salvation? Let me repeat Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. It's finished. It's done. And since it's finished, what do you have to worry about? What are you facing today that's bigger than the eternal consequences of sin in heaven and hell. What are we facing today that's bigger than Jesus saying, it is finished. Nothing. Keep our mind on eternity. Verse 51, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Well, that's a strange little verse right there. A couple things on that. First off, let's talk about the veil. Now, if you were with us in our, our Hebrew study about oh, a month or two ago, we talked about the different instruments in the temple. One of them was the veil, the veil that separated into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Holy of Holies was one day, one time a year, one man could go in the Holy of Holies, the uh, high priest. It was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And he would go in and he would offer a blood sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant, representing the sins of Israel being taken care of. This veil was there to keep that holiness of God, if you will, there. And to let no man get in there. And this veil... It's not a veil like you think of. What we can figure out is this. Some of the dimensions on the veil through reading through the Bible. About 60 feet high. 30 feet wide. About 10 inches thick. That's a pretty big veil. The Bible says it takes hundreds of priests to move this veil. 60 foot, 30 foot, 10 inches thick. Please note the veil is torn as it says right here. Verse 51. Top to bottom. That's important. Who tore the veil? The Lord. Who opened the door? The Lord. He has now opened the door to the Holy of Holies, where we have access now to God anytime we want. Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can boldly go to the throne room of grace now. In fact, even further than that, Corinthians tells us your body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You ever think about that? God has chosen to live inside of you. Now that is so comforting. So that's why when Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, I will never leave you nor forsake you, it's actually for your good that I go. Because when Jesus was on this earth, he could be at one place at one time. Now, with Christ giving us the Holy Spirit, God is with us wherever we go at any moment of the day. But it's also kind of convicting. Because when no one else is around, yeah, the Lord knows. He knows what you say under your breath. 
He knows what you say and what you think. One of my boys the other day had said something. And he kind of was in a little bit of a mood. And he's walking out of the living room. And he's mumbling under his breath. What did you say? And you know what his response was? You know. What did you say? Nothing. Oh, you little sinner. Yeah. (laughs) The Holy Spirit knows. The Holy Spirit knows. Come on. Aren't you glad that some of your thoughts stay inside? Aren't you glad that you actually catch yourself sometimes and don't say what you think? Holy Spirit knows. That's convicting. There is this complete, utter access. The veil has been torn from top to bottom. It's really interesting. In the book of Acts, it talks about how a lot of the priests came to the faith. Can you imagine being the priest on duty? You're going into the showbread, the menorah, etc. And you look and the veil is... Right, there's the ark and I'm not dead. And now you're going to go tell people you're not going to believe this. What? Yeah, the veil tore. How did the veil tore? That thing is 60 foot by 30 foot, 10 inches thick. I don't know, it tore from top to bottom. Right there's the ark. This is why the book of Acts said many priests got saved. That'd be mind-blowing. They would know. They would know something had to happen. Something had to happen. What about these graves being opened and people after the resurrection coming out? Please remember 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. You get a tiny little glimpse of the resurrection right here is what they're allowing us to do. Is by Jesus rising from the dead. We will also rise from the dead. Spiritually from our sin, but also we will live on forever. It's an amazing thing. Verse 54, so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. Truly. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus and Joseph, excuse me, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now we've got a couple points here we're going to say. We'll get into the burial of Christ next week. But I ask you to remember back in verse 34, and they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. Mark tells us that's myrrh. That should, that should ring a bell with you guys. Myrrh. Myrrh has always been around. In the life of Christ. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men brought what? Myrrh. Now what was myrrh used for? Myrrh was used in the embalming process, if you will, of the Jews. They did not embalm like we did, but they used myrrh as that type of spice. So imagine new mother. People are coming to the hospital to visit you. And they bring you something and say, this will look great on his casket. By bringing myrrh, that was associated with death. What else is myrrh associated with in the Bible? Well, in Exodus 30, in the anointing of the priest, you would use some myrrh. So what do we have here? We have myrrh being mentioned at Jesus' death. We have myrrh being mentioned at Jesus' burial. We have myrrh being mentioned at Jesus' birth. And it's also used in Exodus 30 at the anointing of a priest. Put this all together. Jesus is our high priest who was born to be our savior to die. Myrrh is there in all of them. He's our high priest, myrrh. Exodus 30, high priest, born at his birth, to be our savior at his birth, but to die, used at his burial, and you see it here at the cross. You have to understand, and we talked about this a couple months ago at Christmas, that we love to celebrate Christmas, this idea of the baby and the manger and all the hubbub that goes with that. But really what you're celebrating at Christmas is the first day of a 33-year journey of death. Because Christ came to die. And when he started his public ministry, and his public ministry lasted three years, he started at 30. And if you want a little side note, 
That's also when the priest would start being active for service. Three years in ministry, and he constantly told him, guys, I'm going to die. This was the whole buildup to this. And that myrrh is there from his birth to his death to his resurrection. Because why? He is the high priest. And if you've ever studied out Hebrews, he is the high priest that opens the door for us to say, you can now have access to God the Father. Because why? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. This all comes down to the cross. It's all about the cross. Last passage to go with you. Can you go with me to 1 Corinthians 1? The cross. We talked about the word excruciating, meaning out of the cross. Another phrase that we use a lot, and you've heard me teach on this before, is the crux of the matter. C-R-U-X, the crux of the matter. When we say the crux of the matter, we're usually saying this is the most important thing. What's the crux of the matter? This. The word crux means cross. So the crux of the matter is the cross. The cross is the most important thing. Look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. The message of the cross to you, if you're here this morning and you're born again and saved, it is the power of God. It's what drives you. You don't get up tomorrow morning to go to work. You get up tomorrow morning to be a witness for the Lord. You don't go home and love your spouse because you have to. You go home and love your spouse because I want to represent Jesus in my marriage. When you go out into the world and you run into somebody who does not deserve your love, you stop and say, no, I'm giving them the love of Christ. Because it's the message of the cross. That's the power of God. And guess what? When I see that word power, and I see people that don't walk in a life where the cross is the most important thing, they wonder why they walk in weakness. Because if it's the power of God... Why would I not want to tap into that and say, I want the whole focus of what I do to represent Christ and his death and his resurrection? Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message. Preach to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Here's our key, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. That's your goal. That's your focus. The enemy will do whatever he can to get your focus off the cross. Because when you get your focus off the cross, all of a sudden, as we learn in the parable of the sower and the seed... You will get choked out by the things of this world. You will. You'll get worked up over a lot of little things that do not matter. Because when you deal with the whole eternity of heaven and hell and the cross and representing Jesus, that's all that matters. Go back to our study on Simon. Standing there, watching Jesus go by with the cross. He is forced, he is compelled, the Bible says, to carry it. Makes them unclean, unexpected, unwilling. Some of you have something going on here today that you're dragging your feet on. You're unwilling. It's not what you want to do. That's not what you want to be. You just want to make it disappear. But I tell you, Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What do we need to do with that information? I tell you this. 
We're going to get ready to close up here with the final song. Worship team, if we come forward. It's really easy just to leave and just go home and let life continue. I tell you right now, guys, don't let the cross become normal to you. The Bible uses this word, do not let it become profane, just something you're used to. Never let Jesus become something you're just used to. It is the power of God that we get to go out there and represent Jesus in all we do and say. That's all that matters. Keep your mindset on eternity. Keep your mindset on heavenly things. And you'll see your life down on this earth all of a sudden become so much more clear in what's important. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. Lord, it's all about you. And if we